Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials, or items read on Airs LA, are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. January 2. On this date in automotive history in the year 2009, the rare Bugatti is found in a British garage. Media outlets report that a rare, unrestored 1937 Bugatti-type 57S Atalante Coupe has been found in the garage of a British doctor. A month later, on February 7, the car sold at a Paris auction for some $4.4 million. The black two-seater, one of just 17 57S Atalante Coupes ever made by Bugatti, had been owned by English orthopedic surgeon Harold Carr since 1955. Carr, who died in 2007, reportedly had kept the rare vehicle parked in his garage since the early 1960s and hadn't driven it in five decades. The car was built in May 1937 and originally owned by Francis Richard Henry Penn Curzon, the fifth Earl Howe. Curzon, was also the first president of the British Racing Drivers Club and a winner of the 24-hour Le Mans race. When it was built, the 57S Atalante Coupe was capable of reaching speeds of more than 120 miles per hour at a time when the average car couldn't do more than 50 miles per hour. It was also notable for its low-slung frame and V-shaped radiator and featured pig-skin upholstery. At the time of the auction, Carr's car was said to be in good condition and had 26,284 miles on its odometer. The Bugatti Car Company was founded in 1909 by Italian-born Ettore Bugatti in present-day Molsham, France, and became known for producing expensive, cutting-edge sports cars and racing cars. From the time of its founding until the 1940s, the company built fewer than 8,000 cars. Following the death of Ettore Bugatti in 1947, the company went into decline and changed hands several times. In 1998, Volkswagen bought the rights to build cars under the Bugatti name. In 2009, the company introduced the Bugatti Veyron 16.4 Grand Sport, a sports car convertible which was capable of speeds of some 253 miles per hour and carried a price tag of more than $2 million. The Veyron could reach 60 miles per hour in under 2.5 seconds. January 3. On this date in art, literature, and film history, in the year 1987, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducts its first woman. In 1986, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced its first group of inductees, Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, Fats Domino, James Brown, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, Ray Charles, Sam Cooke, and the Everly Brothers. Since then, the Hall has added a new class of inductees each year in four categories, 
performers, non-performers, sidemen, and lifetime achievers. The category in which the hall is most conspicuously lacking, however, is women. Fewer than 100 female performers have been added since the hall admitted its first woman, Aretha Franklin, on January 3, 1987. In its second 10 years, women fared better with the Hall of Fame as artists like the Jefferson Airplane in 1996, Joni Mitchell in 1997, Bonnie Raitt in 2000, and The Pretenders in 2005 became eligible for induction. Stevie Nicks made history in 2019 by being the first female artist to be inducted twice, first with Fleetwood Mac in 1998, then as a solo artist. January 4. On this date, in currency history, in the year 1999, the euro debuts. New Year's Day is the dawn of a new era in Europe as 11 nations adopt a single currency, the euro. Now the official currency of 19 members of the European Union, as well as the nations of Kosovo and Montenegro, the euro's introduction had a profound effect on the global economy and was a watershed moment in the continent's history. Beginning in the 1970s, European leaders had discussed creating a single currency. The plan became official with the 1992 Maastricht Treaty, which formed the European Union and paved the way for the creation of a single European currency. The new currency's name was unveiled in 1995. On December 31, 1998, 11 countries locked in their exchange rates relative to each other and to the euro. At midnight, their currencies officially ceased to exist. For the next three years, the legacy currencies remained legal tender, but electronic transfers and other non-physical monetary transactions began to use euros. Greece would join the eurozone between this initial introduction and the currency's debut in physical form. Mints throughout Europe printed 7.4 billion notes and struck 38.2 billion coins to ensure enough euros would be available by January 1, 2002. Banks issued starter packs containing small amounts of euros starting in December 2001 to familiarize people with the new money. Finally, a year later, the euro formally entered the world as legal tender. The first official purchase took place on the far-flung French island of Réunion, where euros were used to purchase a pound of lychees. Over the next two months, participating nations officially had two currencies in order to give people time to adjust. Businesses advertised prices both in euros and in legacy currencies, and some were accused of using the switch as an excuse to raise prices. Overall, however, the process of creating a new currency for a population of over 300 million people went remarkably smoothly. The euro has long been a source of controversy. Conservatives in the United Kingdom opposed the idea of a European currency, and both the UK and Denmark negotiated opt-outs despite their membership in the EU. The eurozone's greatest test came during the European sovereign debt crisis, which began in 2009 as many central banks dealing in euros were unable to pay their debts and were bailed out by other eurozone nations or EU institutions. Despite continued concerns, seven EU nations have met the criteria and acceded to the euro since 2002, and the nations of Kosovo and Montenegro have also adopted it as their official currency. January 5. On this date in sports history, 
In the year 1920, the New York Yankees announced the purchase of Babe Ruth. The New York Yankees Major League Baseball Club announces its purchase of a heavy-hitting outfielder, George Herman Babe Ruth, from the Boston Red Sox for the sum of $125,000. In all, Ruth had played six seasons with the Red Sox, leading them to three World Series victories. On the mound, Ruth pitched a total of 29 two to three scoreless World Series innings, setting a new league record that would stand for 43 years. He was fresh off a sensational 1919 season, having broken the major league home run record with 29 and led the American League with 114 runs batted in and 103 runs. In addition to playing more than 100 games in left field, he also went 9 to 5 as a pitcher. With his prodigious hitting, pitching, and fielding skills, Ruth had surpassed the great Ty Cobb as baseball's biggest attraction. Despite Ruth's performance, the Red Sox stumbled to a 66-71 record in 1919, finishing at sixth place in the American League. New ownership took control of the club, and in early January, owner Harry Frazee made the decision to sell Ruth to the Yankees for $125,000 in cash and some $300,000 in loans, which Frazee reportedly used to finance his Broadway production interests. After the sale, the Yankees took over Ruth's contract, which called for a salary of $10,000 per year. Aware of his value, Ruth had demanded a salary raise, and New York agreed to negotiate a new contract with terms that would satisfy their new slugger. The deal paid off in spades for New York as Ruth went on to smash his own home run record in 1920, hitting 54 home runs. He connected for 59 homers in 1921, dominating the game and increasing Yankee revenues to the point that the team was able to leave the polo grounds, shared with the New York Giants baseball team, and build Yankee Stadium, which opened in 1923 and became known as the house that Ruth built. Throughout the rest of the 20th century, the legacy of Frazee's lopsided trade continued to hover over Major League Baseball as the Yankees won 39 American League pennants and 26 World Series titles, and the Red Sox went 86 years without a World Series win. In 2004, the Sox finally shook the curse of the Bambino, coming from behind to beat the Yankees in the American League Championship and beating the St. Louis Cardinals to win their first series since 1918. January 6. On this date in rock and roll history in the year 1975, 2,000 Led Zeppelin fans trashed the Boston Garden. A crowd of 2,000-plus lines up outside Boston Garden to buy tickets to the rock band Led Zeppelin. Some in the crowd then entered into the near-empty arena and caused thousands of dollars in damage. For years and years, we had people line up overnight to wait for tickets, recalls Stephen Rosenblatt, the ticket office manager at Boston Garden on that January night. But we never had anything like this. Someone pried open the garden's locked doors around midnight, and soon, hundreds of beer-drinking, bottle-throwing Led Zeppelin fans had the run of Boston Garden. You couldn't have this kind of crowd running around, untethered inside the building, says Rosenblatt, so we decided to open the ticket windows. The near riot was calmed by around 2.30 a.m. when the garden staff began selling tickets, hours ahead of schedule. By 6 o'clock a.m., 
All 9,000 seats were sold out, and the crowd had dispersed, but not before causing upwards of $50,000 in damage to the garden and infuriating Boston's mayor, Kevin H. White. No one could accuse Mayor White of failing to understand the power of rock and roll. Back in 1972, he had personally intervened to free the Rolling Stones from a Warwick, Rhode Island jail, rather than risk a riot by angry Stones fans and a scheduled concert in Boston that night was canceled. White came down hard on the Led Zeppelin rioters. Not only did he cancel the concert scheduled for February 4, but he also announced that the band would not be allowed to perform in Boston for the next five years. In fact, Led Zeppelin would never perform there again. Banned in Beantown, the group moved to the next stop on their 1975 North American tour and bypassed Boston on their next one in 1977. That tour would be Led Zeppelin's last in the United States as the group disbanded following the death of drummer John Bonham on September 25, 1980. January 7. On this date in music history, in the year 1950, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is the number one song on the U.S. pop charts. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen because the 1823 poem A Visit from St. Nicholas also known as Twas the Night Before Christmas, but your knowledge of Rudolph, the most famous reindeer of all, comes courtesy of a department store copywriter named Robert L. May, May's songwriter brother-in-law who set his words to music and the singing cowboy who made a household name of May's creation. The story of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer begins in 1939 at Montgomery Ward, the Chicago-based retail and catalog giant. Seeking a cheaper holiday giveaway than the children's coloring books they had purchased and distributed in years past, Montgomery Ward asked its own marketing department to create a new and original Christmas storybook from scratch. The task fell to May, a family man with a four-year-old daughter. The story that May wrote was given away to more than two million Montgomery Ward customers in 1939. It was not until May's brother-in-law adapted the story into song almost 10 years later, however, that Rudolph truly entered the national consciousness. May's brother-in-law was a professional songwriter named Johnny Marks, best known for works like Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree in 1958 and A Holly Jolly Christmas in 1962, in addition to Rudolph. In 1949, Marx's song found its way to radio legend Gene Autry, the original singing cowboy whose recording of Rudolph sold more than two million units in its first year alone on its way to becoming the second most successful Christmas record in history after White Christmas. It is at this point in the story of Rudolph when those with a nose for legal issues begin to wonder who owned the rights to the beloved Christmas story and money-making juggernaut. In fact, as a paid employee of Montgomery Ward, author Robert L. May had no legal claim whatsoever to an ownership stake in Rudolph. Furthermore, May was a widowed single father in 1947, facing enormous debts as a result of his wife's terminal illness. Yet, in a twist that will boggle the minds and warm the hearts of those hardened to the ways of modern American capitalism, the president of Montgomery Ward, one Sewell Avery, signed over to Robert L. May 100% of the Rudolph copyright in January 1947. May lived comfortably on the royalties from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer until his death in 1976. 
January 8. On this date in literary history in the year 1976, Ragtime wins the National Book Critics Circle Award. Ragtime by E.L. Doctorow is awarded the National Book Critics Circle Award. The book deals with race relations in the 1920s, mixing fictional characters with real figures from the era. The book was made into a 1981 movie and a musical in 1997. The book established Doctorow as a major contemporary novelist. Doctorow was born in New York in 1931 and raised in the Bronx. An avid reader, he decided at age nine to become a writer. He graduated from Kenyon College, then studied at Columbia. He worked as a reservations clerk at LaGuardia Airport, then became a book editor, rising to editor-in-chief of the Dial Press by age 33. Meanwhile, he was writing novels on the side. He published his first Welcome to Hard Times in 1960. The book, about a frontier town, received little notice, as did his next book, Big as Life, in 1966. In 1969, he quit his job, moved to California with his wife and three kids, and began writing full-time. His 1971 novel, The Book of Daniel, about the 1953 execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg for espionage, was more successful, and the next, Ragtime, became a bestseller. Dr. Rowe continued writing and began teaching creative writing at Sarah Lawrence in New York and NYU. He published several novels in the 1980s and 90s, including a coming-of-age gangster story, Billy Bathgate, in 1989, and a film in 1991, and The Waterworks in 1994, about a 19th-century New York. He died in 2015. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for January 2 through January 8. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.